I want to welcome our members and any visitors we have this morning. My name is Russell. I'm filling in for Tim today. I'll be back next week. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the much-needed rain that you've given us. We look forward to the return of the sunshine as well. Uh, send your angels uh, and Holy Spirit this morning as we uh, begin a new quarter. Learn about uh, the way you communicate. You have communicated with humanity in the past through prophecy. Um, give us discerning minds so that we can exercise sound judgment uh, in, in uh, dissecting this uh, this new quarter. Uh, be with those of our group who are not with us today and bring them safely back to us in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We are starting a new quarterly. The prophetic gift, lesson number one, heaven's means of communication. So apparently we're going to be studying prophecy for an entire 13 weeks. And I thought it might be somewhat useful that we answer some questions first and, and define a few terms. So bear with me here before we dive into the actual lesson. Uh, throw this question out. What, what is prophecy? What do you define prophecy as? Foretelling the future. Okay. Telling, telling the future. Describing events that will happen. Anything else? It's God's communication with us. Okay, one of them. A prophet is one who speaks for someone else. Okay, good. Any other definitions of prophecy? A prophet may be able to read the heart. In some cases. Okay, how? Divine. A prophet is one whom God chooses. You don't elect to be a prophet. Okay, so you don't wake up one morning and say, hmm, I'm going to be a prophet. I think I'd like to do that prophecy thing. Okay, so you have to be chosen. Getting back to your comment, someone who reads the heart, well, that has to be, that has to be a God-given gift because uh, I, I don't know too many humans that can read the heart. Uh, right, there are some that can make uh, draw conclusions based on observations, right. and that's how um, you know, that's a, there are a lot of palm readers and and, and uh, you know sorcerers that uh, that make a living based on observations. Well, the other thing is Albert Ellis has these dysfunctional uh, thoughts that we all have. There's ten of them, and one of them is reading the mind. And we think sometimes we can read people's minds. Mm and their motivations, and really it is a God-given uh, talent to do that. So I would think that that would really be something God had given them to do, because otherwise we consider it a dysfunction. Mm. Okay. This is as defined by uh, dictionary.com. Prophecy, the foretelling or prediction of what is to come. we discussed that one. Something declared by a prophet, particularly a divine-inspired prediction, instruction, or exhortation. So, communicating God's instructions to another. A divinely inspired utterance or revelation and the action, function, or faculty of a prophet. What do you guys recognize as the first prophecy in Scripture? Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. What does that say? Someone read it for us, please. Did you get that? God, or Christ, is speaking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, meaning the seed of the woman. And you shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy, uh, and what is it prophesying? What is it telling about? Messiah. A coming redeemer, a coming Messiah, a coming Savior. Do we see any differences between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy? What were the Old Testament prophets prophesying? Okay, that, that's one big category. They were prophesying a coming Redeemer, Messiah, Savior. Repentance. Repentance. They were prophesying like you repent or... Okay, they were telling of consequences 
which would happen if the current course of, of action or behavior was continued. And they were also telling of consequences which would happen if, if they deviated from the current course of behavior or action. Or blessings that would happen because that they were cooperating with God. Correct. Correct. Uh, yeah, so if, if Israel is heading toward idolatry, prophet came along and said, you persist, this, this X, Y, and Z will happen. If you turn away from idolatry and turn back to the Lord your God, uh, he will heal you. Um, anything else in Old Testament prophecy that we see and we recognize? Many times it was uh, the deliverance of Israel when they'd been taken into captivity or the fact that they would be taken into captivity. Okay. I, that kinda, I kind of put that under the broad umbrella of consequences of behavior. But, but then also, like in the case of Cyrus, where he was a free uh, conquer Babylon and free the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem. Okay, and what did that what did that do? What did that inspire in the Israelites, the captive Israelites? Or what should that have inspired? Hope. Okay? So prophecy gave them hope. Let's look at New Testament prophecy. What categories can we put New Testament prophecy in? Second coming. Okay. The Messiah is coming again. Old Testament prophecy prophesied of the first advent. New Testament, and some, some Old Testament prophecy prophesied of the second advent as well. But most New Testament prophecy is, is uh, talking about the second advent. And the struggle that will lead up to that. Okay. What else is New Testament prophecy telling us? Signs of the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. What we say about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior through believing in the blood of our Savior, you know, is more fully understood in the New Testament through Paul. Okay, that's correct. I'm speaking specifically of New Testament prophecy. Okay. Well, Paul prophesied too that the second coming was coming too. Okay. So, coming, a Messiah is coming again. Anything else? There was the interpretation of the previous prophecies. Okay. So we saw fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in the first advent of the Savior. What was that supposed to do to the Jews and then the Christians? Make them turn towards Christ. If we see a prophecy come true, when it said it was going to come true, what, what, what should that inspire of us? Confidence, hope. Well, faith in the word of God. Okay. Or at least a question whether it was true or not. Um, elaborate. Well, well, because in the Old Testament it says even if you see if a prophet speaks and he even if it comes to true to pass, if they don't speak according to my way, then you know it's still not true. Then take them out, stone them. To um, at least to pay some attention to it. Okay. Does it, does New Testament prophecy give us any sort of uh, any sort of guidance about warnings and consequences of of behavior? Well, when Christ comes the third time, you might say that the wicked will be lost forever, and and the righteous will have eternal life. Okay. The point I'm trying to make here is I don't see too much difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Just different events. Yeah. It's still talking about a coming Messiah, either the first advent or the second advent. It's still giving us uh, warnings and, and, and guidance for the path uh, that we choose. And, and certainly in New Testament prophecy, when we when we combine Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy, and we're living in present day, we can see that you know every every major prophetic event, except the second coming of Christ, has already been fulfilled and been fulfilled when it was said it was going to be fulfilled. That that should give us hope and confidence that uh, what we're reading in the Word of God is is actually the Word of God. Thoughts. 
I'd say that the only thing that is really different as far as the consequences for your behavior is that I think it seems to me like this the New Testament uh, <coughs> focuses more on the heart and the change of attitude within your own self rather than the Old Testament seemed to be a lot on behaviors uh, and they and they had a lot of rules for behaviors. Not that the New Testament didn't, but it just seems like it's more emphasized about consequences, but work on the heart, work on your attitude, work on your relationships with your um, God instead of the behaviors, maybe. I don't know. And, and yet, if you delve into Old Testament prophecy and, and the, word, the communication from God in Old Testament prophecy, isn't that, isn't that the the underlying message he was trying to communicate to the children of Israel beneath the rules sure. and you know, interwoven, intermixed within yeah, the, the laws and rules. And, about, you know, in slavery and all that stuff that it's like they didn't get that. Yeah, they were, they were babes. They were children. Yeah. You know, and, and we've been over the, the toothbrushing analogy uh, in here numerous times. Interwoven in Deuteronomy when, when the laws, Mosaic laws being expounded upon and the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and life for a life. Uh, God still says, bless those who curse you and love your enemy. It's still there. It's the same message. Let's uh, look to Sabbath's lesson here. Someone read the memory text for us. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Okay, thank you. I uh, Thoughts on this uh, passage? We often think of prophecy as fortune telling, you know, or, you know, prophetic, futuristic mm. things. And yet, in this way, we're talking about speaking of God and for God. You know, the, you know, God is speaking to us. And whether it's with, telling the future or whether it's telling us about us, it's still prophecy. Good. Any other thoughts? I like the, the various times in various ways. When you think about the different things that you read in the Bible, the God, how he desperately was trying to talk to the people. Think about the things that Ezekiel was doing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Some of those visions he was having. Or, or, or Jonah, you know, or, you know just amazing ways that God was trying to reach them where they were at. I mean, it really is incredible that the depths that he'll go to to try to just reach us. Mm, well said. Thank you. Yeah, consider Hosea. Um, how many, you know, I'm single. Well, what if God appeared to me in a dream and said, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And um, when she leaves you, go get her back and do it repeatedly. And you know, father four or five children with her and, and name them you know, insulting names. <laughs> and he did it. The good part about it, though, is God didn't tell him all that at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the introduction was bad enough. <laughs> yeah, it might, might have been a little overwhelming. God tried every method he could in the Old Testament. And finally, he just gave the ultimate, and we still rejected him. That's right. They, they, they killed him. Did they really understand what he, what he came for? Did anybody really understand? The disciples apparently didn't understand even until after he was resurrected. Well, that's a good question. Um, we can... We can apply that to present tense. Do we understand what Christ came for? I think uh, Christianity has perverted Calvary in ways that children of Israel wouldn't have even, or disciples wouldn't have even dreamed of. So I, that's a valid question. Looking at the big picture here, what has God been trying to tell humanity ever since the fall? What, is it, what has he been trying to reveal to humanity? What he's really like. God his loves character. us. What he is, his character. And God loves us. Still cares for us. Who he is. And he wants to restore us to his image. 
Yes, and that that's the whole purpose of what he's been trying to tell us is to bring us back to back to our pre-fallen state. We can't be like him if we don't know what he's like. Correct. Well said. He's so I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. Right. And this is he, just not for us; it's for the universe. You know, there's more to it than just saving my skin. <clears throat> Good. Uh, that's correct. We we humans sometimes develop a a narcissistic approach to to uh, the plan of salvation, even though we're the only ones left to save. Um, we still kind of get wrapped up in our own little drama, and we forget that there is a bigger picture going on here. God has been trying to reveal Himself to humanity. That's why. Did you guys ever wonder why Christ was born of a virgin? Why wasn't he born to someone who already had children? And there would have been a question whether he was the son of God. Hardly. Okay. Do you ever wonder why he used the analogy of being born again? Do you ever wonder why he was in the world three days and resurrected on the third? Do you ever wonder any, of the, any stuff like that? Or why, why the details? These these were all pagan beliefs prior to Christ's advent. There's an Egyptian god who was born of a virgin and worshiped because of that. When someone is indoctrinated was indoctrinated into the mysteries of Egypt through the pyramids, they were referred to as being born again. And those who worship the sun when the sun stopped moving south in the horizon on December 21, and then started moving back north on December 25, they said, God's sun was dead three days, and now it's risen. Now it's resurrected. These were all pagan, pagan prophecies and pagan beliefs. This is what God has been trying to say. No, no, no. I am the God who led you out of Egypt. That's why he prefaces the Ten Commandments with that. This is why Christ said you must be born again. This is why Christ said, before Abraham was, I am. There's been a continual attempt to reveal, no, I am the God who created you. I am the God who loves you. I am the God who wants to heal you. He's been trying to reveal himself to us. Thoughts? Questions? Sounds reasonable. I mean, for every truth, Satan has a lie. I, I think he has several. <laughs> Dozen. What is it? For every every road, there's two ditches? <laughs> That's good. I've never heard that one. Okay, uh, Sabbath's lesson talks about two different types of revelation. It talks about um, general and special revelation. General revelation being you know, God revealing himself through nature and through uh, conscience. And then special revelation... Uh, it was God's revelation through uh, his son. Any thoughts or ideas on the differences between a special, uh, a general and special revelation? My, my, my feeling is that a general revelation uh, applies overall. I mean, it, and a special one would be more individualized to a certain uh, situation or person. Okay. Any other thoughts? No. Let's uh, fast forward here to Sunday's lesson. Someone read the first paragraph, please, in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, God spoke with Adam and Eve face to face. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. However, after that fateful day, when they blatantly disobeyed their Lord, they no longer were allowed to enjoy his presence and their face-to-face -face communion with him ended. Question, was this God the Father that they communicated with, or was this Christ that they communicated with face-to-face? -face? It was Christ. Christ. Okay. I, I confess I don't know. Um, I think it's logical to conclude it was Christ, but I don't know. Did face-to-face -face communication with Christ end that day? Well, Adam and Eve did. 
God spoke face to face with Abraham and Moses but later in, on. But in the form of man. I think it ended that day when Christ appeared as himself. Okay. After that, when he appeared to man, he appeared as a man. As a man, okay. God. And that's how he appeared when he came in, in the flesh in the first advent. Why did he have to disguise himself? <laughs> or why? Or why did he? Why did he disguise himself? Because after sin, man could no longer look upon the face of God in his self and how he really is. But if that's the case, wasn't didn't God communicate with Adam and Eve after the fall, the day the day of the fall, yeah. after mm-hmm. they sinned? Yes. Yeah. survived. I think it's cl- I think it's clear that he did. I mean, he showed them how to. How to make garments from a, a slain animal. Sacrifice. Then, then why didn't he appear anymore as himself to man after that? Uh, I don't know that he didn't. Mm. He I showed mean, his backside to Moses, right. right? He couldn't sell the whole glory of right. his face. Correct. Well, it says no man has seen God and lived. Right. That's right. John does say that, but and yet Adam saw God. Well, that was... Before he fall, no, after he said, after he sinned, he said, I don't think he saw God in all His glory. Well, so we're certainly not giving any scriptural insight as to whether or not uh, God disguised Himself. I think it's but, yeah, reasonable to conclude that He. Actually, when Adam sinned, was he was his whole life changed by sin at that instant? In other words, had he lived in years of sin? No, it was a, a moment thing. Now, I don't think. Initially, when he sinned, right at that instant, I don't. I don't look at his body as totally changed, or his mind, or his anything. But he was hiding. Well, I think. I think he was instantly changed. Uh, he he started dying at that point. I, I mean, he was changed. He had years of dying. I know that's correct, but he was instantly changed in the fact that he tried to throw his wife under the bus. I mean, he was he was instantly selfish. To, it wasn't me, Lord. It was that woman you gave me. But he was also, it says also he was afraid of God. Yes. Yeah, it was changed enough that God threw him out of Eden. Let's back up a little bit, though. Yeah, go ahead. Where did Lucifer sin? In God's presence. Within the very presence and glory of God. He hung around there for a while. And we have no record that he camouflaged himself before the universe so that Lucifer was not killed. Well, there, there is some evidence that Christ disguised himself as an angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, the archangel, and he did such a good job of disguising himself as an angel that the angels considered him another angel until the rebellion. And then it, it was revealed that, well, no, Michael is actually equal part of the Godhead. I think God always meets us where we're at in whatever form it takes for us to be able to gain a little understanding. And that and that the problem is not that some kind of an arbitrary thing where he says, okay, you've messed up, now you won't be able to look at me anymore. But instead, our minds are, are damaged and we're not seeing God the way he really is. I mean, we're not seeing him face to face as he really is, just because of us, not because of God. Oh, well said. He's indicating all through Scripture that there are times when he will, when he will have a friend that he can meet face to face, you know, with Moses and others. But the problem is that we don't see him. We don't understand him. Excellent thoughts, Doctor Moses. Expound a little bit on your what you were talking about with you know Lucifer ascending in heaven and well. Um, if we truly believe that Lucifer sinned and he was the one that originally rebelled, he was going out and speaking to the angels. It's our understanding that he was going out and speaking to the angels and, and with subterfuge and lies about God while he was still serving as the light bearer, Lucifer. Right. And so he was sinning. He was separating himself from God even while he was functioning as God's representative before the universe. Right, exactly. Suddenly annihilated by God's presence when he went in and spoke with God. And Mm -hmm. and when God, you know, and, you know, 
when God spoke to him. And when God tried to win him back to right. to trust and to repentance. Well, what does that say about the patience and the, mm-hmm. and the mercy of God? There must be something different about Lucifer as an angel because he was still going into the uh, courts of heaven, you might say, after he was expelled from heaven. He went as the representative of this earth. We see that in Job. And uh, he wasn't thrown out completely from from being the representative of this earth until after the cross. We, we have this imagery of, of the scene as in Daniel, when thrones were set up, and that the Ancient of Days came, and that um, there appears to at least to be um, some essence of, in other passages where... Um, I'm forgetting the passage, Jeremiah, that is uh, Joshua and and the turban and, and take away his filthy garments. I, I think that's Zechariah. Yeah. And this is the brand that has been plucked from the fire. Yes. It, it shows Lucifer accusing Joshua before God. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is at least some approach of this being to the heavenly being. And the ability of the approach is not thwarted by God's flaming presence. Right. Now, okay, we'll, we'll get... there has to be at least some change, because in the end, there is a destruction in God's presence. By God's presence. I'll get to your, I'll get to your question in just a second. Do we see any parallels between, between what Lucifer experienced, or, you know, pre-Calvary, and what humanity experienced pre-Calvary. I mean, did did God reveal the lion's share of his glory to Moses? No. He didn't? Backside, he says. Okay, he didn't reveal his face, but he revealed quite a bit of his glory to Moses. Did he reveal, did Christ reveal his glory to Peter, James, and John in Transfiguration? And were they turned to ash? Peter was so dumbfounded, he said, well, well, let's build an altar here. Yes? I find it problematic because we're, we're dealing with such limited information to try to piece together an image of God so, so, so infinite. Oh, absolutely. And, but the, some of the things we're missing in parts of the puzzle that we're piecing together is the fact that when Christ, uh, when Peter cut off the ear of the uh, individual and Christ, the divinity flashed through humanity, they all flattened. They all were floored, basically, literally. Uh, when Moses came down from the mountainside, after having been in the presence of God, they asked him to veil his face. Right. So it wasn't for a lack of proper theological understanding about the character of God that that affected them. Certainly fear, I thought, under the fear of God, causes apprehension, causes anxiety. But there's also, apparently, some physiological phenomenon, some physical phenomenon, in the presence of God's glory that actually does flatten people in some way, shape, or form. Okay. Thoughts? I look at it as more the light of what he is. You know, that that the thing is not about so much like some kind of a brightness, but it's it's like the truth of what he is and the truth that's how his kingdom is run and and the truth of what we are that finally in the end and that contrast will be so destructive to us you know i don't think it's so much that we can't see like his brightness but he's only able to reveal to us as we're able to see truth because truth in itself is so damaging to our to our minds whenever we're so out of harmony with it you know (laughs) because our guilt will consume us again well said any other thoughts before we move on? But then again, to what he said, mm-hmm. when when divinity flashed through humanity at that one point, did they all feel so guilty that they all fell down flat? Or was there something physiological? Well, I can say in all honesty that I don't know. When I was referring to, I'm sorry, a friend of mine gave me a book called The Gift, 
And I was reading through it, and it was just talking a little bit. No, they weren't sleeping or riding there at the Mount of Transfiguration, but they just didn't get it yet. This, this book was saying they just didn't get it, or at Gethsemane, Christ was trying to prepare them for the cross and what was coming up, and they just, no, no, who's the greatest in the kingdom? You know, it's just scary. I mean, I want to get it. I mean, like now, here we're coming up on another coming, another. Yeah, and and is humanity in danger of misunderstanding the kingdom of God just like the disciples did? Is Adventism in danger of misunderstanding our role in the kingdom of God just like the disciples did? Um, I think it's I think it's clear that we are in danger of misunderstanding it. Monday's lesson, we're talking about nature. Someone read Romans 1, 19-23. This is a familiar passage uh, for those who are members of this class. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it. Ever since the creation of the world, His eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things He has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Okay. Back up to 19. What, what are... And maybe 20. What exactly does it say? What aspects about God has been revealed through nature? Well, his intelligence. You know, uh, the complexity of it all, the, inter- the balance of it all, the interactions between the things that you see shows an extremely uh, intelligent and wide visioning, creative God. Power and power majesty. Okay, so Scripture tells us that we can look at nature and we can see that God is powerful, and we can see His divine nature. We can certainly see that that He's a God of beauty. Okay, it only takes a trip to Fiji or trip to the mountains, trip to the ocean um, to see that God is a God of beauty. Uh, we can see that He's a God of order. Uh, like Linda was alluding to, that, um, you know, the planets spin on axes and they circle around the sun. The galaxies uh, are held in place uh, by uh, physical laws. Or even a trip to your medical book and how the body performs. Exactly. You know, every 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 patient I see and, every, and, and the, the healing that occurs in them, and those of you who are or in healthcare, and understand what I'm saying. To see the mystery of how blood clots and how bones heal and how the body restores itself, that shows me a God of order and a God of love. Um, you got a comment? Well, last night I had the privilege of going over to a Christmas party to uh, for our office, and the person we went to their house, uh, he's a guitar maker, mm. and went down to his shop. His dungeon. I love that. And um, <laughs> going down, you can learn a lot about him, his meticulous attention to detail <laughs> and the quality and whatnot of what he is. <clears throat> but you will not get to know him. Right. You'll know things about him by look at, looking at both the finished product as well as things in process. Right. But you won't know him. Great analogy. So Paul tells us that nature reveals enough about God so the men are without excuse. Even a nature marred by sin, we can still see the hand of God. We can still see his love, his power, his attention to detail. He's a God of beauty. We can still see um, divine qualities. We can still see, we can see everything in nature that, that we need to. Okay? We still don't know God. Even though we, we can see enough about God, we still don't have a relationship with him. When, when God showed himself to Moses, it said he, he showed him his mercy, his goodness, his long-suffering, his graciousness. 
those were the things that we can't get in nature, that we have to get from from Christ, looking at the life of Christ. Right. Yeah, uh, in the back, Linda. Are we not in danger of doing exactly the same thing as it's talking here, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, when we consider how many people, Christians included, consider that we came down from in the same line as apes in evolution? Oh, absolutely. The truth of God for a lie and made images of beasts. Clearly. Peggy? He's dependable. When you look at nature... There's day, there's night, and a lot of other things. You don't have to wonder, tonight is it going to be night, or are we going to have daytime for six weeks, and then when are we going to have night to sleep? In all of nature, you plant a seed, and you nurture it, it grows. And to me, that is dependability. So if you can depend on the way nature performs, then you can depend on the way God cares for us and on the promises he makes. Well said. Now, I hate to throw a wrench in that, but God did stop the earth from spinning one time, <laughs> the Old Testament, and he did cause the sun to to back up, or he reversed the earth's rotation. But he uses that as a metaphor for his word. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. When Christ fully displayed the law of love, on the cross, and when the law of love defeated the law of sin and selfishness, life, resurrection of Christ was the only thing that could could result from that. The grave could not hold him. Life had to happen. He had to be resurrected because the law of love defeated the law of selfishness. Thoughts? Even if God goes outside of what he... He did at creation. It still doesn't mean that he's, or the laws of the physical world that he's created doesn't mean that he's any less dependable. Because anytime we see him doing things like, say, stopping the sun or something, it's it's only because he's working for the good of humanity, and it, it shows even more that he comes through for us and that we can depend on him. And maybe he's not limited to the laws of this world. Yeah, I mean the laws of the laws of physics as we know them may may only be the tip of the iceberg. Mm. And likely are the tip of the iceberg, uh, as far as the. Can come from heaven to earth in a few minutes. So I mean, that, that's not in our physics. Well, who in the world made the laws to begin with? He did. Yes, he did. So I mean, you know, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> well, I would suggest that he operates consistent with his character and his laws. We don't know the entirety of his character, and we don't know the entirety of his laws because we're finite and sinful. Uh, and we'll spend the rest of eternity discovering more about his uh, his character and and the laws that he that govern that he governs. And yeah, I don't think we can conclude that he can do whatever he wants. I, I think he operates consistent with with his character and the laws. That's the laws of his government. He's a character of love, so that's what he wants to do. Only good things, because that's his character. So he does what he wants. Maybe the law of love trumps uh, the natural law at times. With God. I think they're all consistent, but like you said, we just don't understand them all. Yeah, I think we will. I think we will come to see um, the other side of heaven that he operated consistently and orderly, and did not deviate from the the laws of the government of heaven. When God created man out of dirt, we don't quite understand that because we can't do it, and we have never seen that happen. But we're told it does. And when Jesus came, he recreated. A guy's vision that was born blind and his mind to be able to see the vision his eyes saw because usually that part of the mind goes away if you don't need it since birth. Mm -hmm. So he recreated not only his eyes and vision but his brain and his ability to see what he saw with a little dirt on his eyes, a little mini creation for him. And it's the same, it's a little capsulized version of creation for that guy. We don't understand that, but apparently it's within his natural, his ability to do. Right. And we can we can fashion a very lifelike model of a man out of clay, but we can't breathe the breath of life into it and have it become a living being. That's beyond any um, physical law that I'm aware of, and yet it happened. So there must be some law out there that 
God operates uh, under that, that's consistent with that. Yes. Tim has talked in times past about how our brains are remodeled based on what we use, and that um, that is seen in, in English-speaking individuals who, who, who cannot hear certain um, sounds that a Chinese person may make by and vice versa. And yet at, at Babel and at Pentecost, something happened that globally changed the brains of, of lots of individuals to do something that they creatively could not have done before. And just because I don't understand it, you know, the, the amazing thing is what we, we, we do see and understand. Mm -hmm. Now, I, from what I do in my life as my vocation, I'm amazed by God's creative power. Amen. And yet someone coming from a different mindset looks at that same information and sees an evolutionary tale. Right. You know, and it's all based on the direction from which we are coming to those very same facts. Yep. And to me, it's just incredible. Okay, let's look ahead to Tuesday's lesson. This is, uh, we're talking about God's communication through the prophets. Someone read Exodus 4, 10 through 17 first. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, and I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blue? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak, and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. And then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if, you were, as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hand so you can perform miracles, miraculous signs with it. Okay, thank you. What do we see occurring here? It almost sounds like it's some God making do something he doesn't really want to do. <laughs> okay, I, I agree. I, so, I thought that before. Yeah, so it's like he's making him do something against his will. Mm, well... Not quite that no. I, I think that's a little bit of a stretch, but... Well, I tend to stretch things, but the two of you have not seen it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, I, do it, I really don't, but, you know, if you can make me do it, I'll do it. It sounds yeah. like God was willing to equip Moses. Exactly. He was willing, and he wasn't at that point, and so he found plan B was Aaron. So he met him where he was willing to trust him and... <coughs> okay. I'm sure it built Moses' trust as they process as well. Why was Moses hesitant? Was was it? They didn't trust him. Okay, say that louder, please. They didn't trust enough. He didn't trust. Um, was it out of a sense of humility that he didn't want to be the mouthpiece, didn't want to be the prophet, or was it? He didn't feel adequate. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just spent forty years out being a shepherd. He was shy. But it's interesting how he tried to, to do it on his own through force. Forty years previously, correct. And after, after being herding sheep for 40 years, he didn't uh, feel that he was adequate to do it. Maybe that's uh, part of his uh, um, humility and meekness. Coming through, that I think he's still feeling guilty from killing the Egyptian. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, I just think for I relate to it personally. I think a lot of us uh, have a sense of pride, and we're afraid of failure. So it goes back to the trust issue. But we don't look on it. We're we're saying we trust, but we're saying also, no, I know better. I know better. I can't do that. And it's it's only because we're worried about our own failure. Mm, interesting. Okay, so a little fear and selfishness uh, creeping in, perhaps? 
I mean, the lesson indicates that it, it was the humility of Moses that, that caused this. No. <laughs> we have a disagreement. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm fully on board with that either. I think there may have been some some fear and selfishness yet to be uh, weeded out and tilled from Moses' character. But I think it indicates how often God uses us even when we're pretty bad at following his direction. He had a little bit of willingness. <clears throat> Why else would Aaron have been on his way to meet Moses? But, you know, when I was reading this, I was thinking it seems like after Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness doing the sheep, that he would have spent that time learning more about God and learning to trust God and communicating with God and getting to the point that almost anything God would have asked him to do, he would have been willing because he knew God so well then. Well, I think he clearly, I think he did have a much clearer picture of who God was, but there was still obviously work yet to be done. And... And even, you know, leading the children of Israel through the 40 years in the wilderness. And, and he ended up striking the rock. There was still work yet to be done. This is so much like the disciples because they had this clear picture in their mm-hmm. head of how God was going to come. Mm-hmm. The Messiah was going to be like. And Moses, he was trained to be a military leader. And he's, passed, he's now past his prime, you know, physically. Yes. And so his whole plan of how he was going to deliver Israel is now no longer possible. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that he had to totally, and we have to do this all the time. You know, we have an idea of how God's going to do it, but we're wrong. Right. We have an idea of how he's going to come and when he's going to come and mm-hmm. how the wicked will be destroyed and oh, et cetera, et cetera. Lives, and yep. What God's going to do through me. Well, no, we're wrong. Yeah, we have a lot of preconceived notions. That's correct. There's a comment in the back. I was going to basically line what she said. Under, she, yeah, it seems to have under, underestimated God's power to speak through him. I don't think he had fear because he went along with Aaron into Pharaoh's presence. <laughs> and also the issue of being in the wilderness, it doesn't seem to be borne out in the text because it says, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you spoke to me in the present. So for all of his life, as far as he's concerned, he doesn't have the capacity to be able to come before the courts of, of Egypt and be able to... Uh, represent God, so he seems to be still under, trying to understand how to how to have God use him, uh, even though he senses his inabilities. Okay, he doesn't feel eloquent. God's logic is pretty irrefutable. You know, who made God, who made man's tongue? Um, which is the same thing he says to, to Jeremiah. Oh, shoot, I had a brilliant thought and it escaped. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. Okay, and the year's over. Ugh, maybe next year. <laughs> Let's look ahead to Wednesday's lesson. Probably have to finish with that one. We're looking at prophecy. This is a segment on prophecy through the Word of God. I have in the past, I'll say two to three months, come across a large percentage of, of, of people who consider Scripture to be um, a nice historical record, uh, a book with some uh, amazing stories, but it was a book written by fallible, sinful men, and therefore they have a difficult time um, grasping the concept that the that is the word of of divinity, is the word of God. What would you say to these folks that I've met regarding that? It works for me. I think all you have is a personal testimony of, of, of what its effect is on you and your personal life. Okay, so we can give evidence of how Scripture has taken... You, a, a me from point A to point B, and is continuing the the process. Okay, I think that's I think that's one of the most powerful arguments for um, scripture being divinely inspired. Uh, are there any others? I think the truthfulness of it is pretty powerful. I mean, what other book do you read that if you read a biography, it it, it describes the life of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or whoever, it might be in glowing terms. But in the Bible, God's best friends, he just tells the truth. (laughs) Okay, excellent point. Even the heroes of the Bible, uh, Scripture presents them as fallible and as 
in need of help. Uh, I think that's another powerful argument for uh, the validity of divinely inspired scripture because, uh, like she said, a biography or an autobiography is usually presented free of mistakes, you know, by the about the person that's being written about. Any other arguments? Yes, in the back. Like I said, the, the historicity showing the truth of what the, the 66 different books is an important argument in terms of talking about the truth of what doesn't necessarily imply the divinity. Um, the idea of personal experience is an important, but it's also kind of subjective. Uh, what I, what's been appealing to me recently is the idea that when you look at anything that's human, uh, a piece of metal that something man has created, and you look at an electron microscope, you get deep, closer and closer to it, you see more and more things that are are defective. Whereas in the Bible, what I find fascinating is that all these books that are supposedly separate, all 66 books, the closer you examine them, you see a golden thread mm. that, that, that links all these different passages. Right. And that itself must imply design, just like you see in nature, something that's complex, even in, even in a microscopic level, it implies a sort of divinity, a designer, or something that's actually created there. Excellent. Well said. So the, the time period spanning, you know, when beginning when the oldest book was written to the last book was what 1500 years something like that so to have a th- uh, you know one and a half millennia worth of writing and to be tied together that intricately and that and have that same theme and thread running through it yeah that speaks to divine inspiration as well 40 different people can you take 40 random authors and have them all agree Oh, we can't take 40 people in here and have them all agree. Exactly. Yeah. I, correct. So. But you haven't taken 40 random people. This is a collection which you have collected. That's true. There were books that got excluded from the canon um, and books that got included. And We have to remember that there are others who have a different collection of books, which they consider the Bible. Yep. And text they gave in the, in the lesson for Wednesday, 2 Timothy 3.16, depending on which version you read that from can, can mean different things. Um, all scripture is divinely given or whatever. And yet, um, this, the, the reverse could be said, all scripture that has been given you know, and so if you can include anything into your Bible, you can have a much different collection and much different vision of who God is and what is happening. On on Friday's lesson, the quote. Yes, read read it, please. Kind of told it all. We'll finish. We'll finish with it. Christ revealed all of God that sinful human beings could bear without being destroyed. He is the divine teacher, the enlightener. And had God thought us in need of revelations other than those made through Christ and in his written word, he would have given them. That's my testimony to the church. So all these things we don't understand, and it's like, you know, I don't understand this. We're not meant to understand it now. That's how I would try it. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Uh, we best close with that. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for the gift of uh, that you've given us in prophecy. Uh, prophecy in your word, the prophecy through the prophets themselves, and the revelation of your uh, character and government as revealed through Christ and his life and death and resurrection on this earth. Please continue to work in each of our lives uh, and continue to heal and transform us so that when you come again, we may all be standing ready. In Jesus' name, amen.